1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
2: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey.
1: And I'm Robert Diamant.
2: And this is TalkArt.
1: Welcome to TalkArt. How
2: are you today, Robert?
1: Today, Russell, I feel like I am spinning plates. Mm. Um, I'm in New York City, I've been at the art fair, I've been to the Met today, I've been to lots of artist studios. It's been a wild week, but it got me thinking about today's guest because today's guest grew up in New York and is probably the most iconic painter alive from New York. Um, He's influenced all of our understanding of art in so many ways, but also film as well. He made pretty much my most favorite film ever made, Diving Bell and Butterfly. 2007 and currently has a new exhibition about to open at Pace Gallery which is a kind of full circle moment because it's a a body of work known as like Velvet Paintings and I think his first ever exhibition with Pace back in 1984 was also Velvet Paintings so it seems like an amazing time to connect with him. I've met him numerous times myself as well over the years. Uh, I even went on a private tour with him in Venice with Norman Rosenthal around of an exhibition of like, I don't know what it was, like 30 years of work or something. It was so incredible. Um, but I'm really excited to finally have this guest on car, one of our heroes, the one and only
3: Julian Julian,
2: Schnavo. Schnavo. <laughs>
3: Julian, Thank you for that. So you're in New York right now, Robert. Yes. How long are you going to be in New York? Till tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. What's today? Today's Saturday. Yeah. Well, I don't know if the Pace Gallery is open or closed, but there might be some paintings of mine lying around in there that haven't been hung yet. And you could sort of barge in or speak to somebody that is your contact over there and just go and see them lying around as they are lying around. I will definitely do that. Mm. I would love God, I'm
2: to I'm so jealous. Well, I'm in London, so I'm not going to be able to do that, Julian. But thank you very much
3: for uh,
2: <laughs> making me jealous. I mean, if you, you want
3: to see something in the flesh, it's a, it's, you know, that's, you're there. I'm out in Montauk. I'm not there. Ah. I'm sitting in front of a, a beautiful Cy Twombly drawing mm. from 1988 that he gave me. Wow. I have a pair of them. It says, Hang I Amix. this is no time for poetry. Archaeologist, third century A.D. Anyway, so yeah, Sai picked up. I was making a painting called "The Walk Home" on Twentieth Street, a big plate painting that belongs to the Broad Foundation now. But anyway, there was a bunch of stuff lying on the floor, and there were two drawings lying on the floor. And Sai said, "Well, you think I could have those?" And I said, "Well, you you want those really? You want those?" I said, "Yeah." I said, sure, of course you can have them. He said, I'll give you something for them someday. So he took these two little drawings that were on the floor, a uh, bunch of stains on them and some ballpoint pen drawings. And uh, and years later, I went, my mother and father were still alive at the time, and we went to Via Montserrat, and he had, and there were 16 drawings in this group. I, he gave me the first one and the last one. I don't know, 16 or 14, but anyways, was the first and last of the two uh, that, uh let's see that's the first one and I i'm not good with a computer but that's the last one
2: so describe what and we're looking at julian for people listening
3: you're looking at two you're looking at drawings of cy probably from 1988 who was a dear friend of mine who died a few years back and um actually it was the franz west sculpture in the foreground when i was turning the computer around anyway i'm sitting in a in a house from 1882 in the in montauk that was built by stanford white but, um,
2: so to so have what well, obviously you talked about friends west you are a collector as well as a, a multidisciplinary artist and cy twombly was your friend as you've just cited and that's i mean what what Twombly is obviously an icon of history and art what was it like knowing that this artist was a fan of your work, like he wanted to collect your work? And and this this concept of trading is something that you've sort of done throughout
3: your career. Well, it was a great honor to be friends with him, and it was a great honor to know that he appreciated what I was doing. It's funny because he took those two drawings, and his brother-in-law, um, um, Giorgio Franchetti, took me to his house in Bassano Teverino, and Cy wasn't there at the time. And the two little drawings that he picked up off the floor were framed in 16th century Florentine frames on both sides of his bed. And I I mean, he had no idea I was going to go over there with, with Giorgio anyway. That was made me feel pretty good. And then another thing is he had this extraordinary Picasso drawing of, uh, a line drawing in a, in a great wooden frame. And I said that drawing that Picasso drawing Spectacular, and he said, "I made that." So I thought, okay, he did that. So I made a couple of versions of some late Picasso paintings, thinking if Sai did it, I can try to do it too. (laughs) And uh, my parents were still alive when we went over there. And my parents died. I guess my father died in two thousand and four. My mom a little bit before that. So I'd say probably around the at the end of the twentieth century. um, That's a crazy description uh they went with me to Sty's place and looked around and they thought oh well maybe our son's not crazy this is a guy he he lives they sort of live in a similar way and their work is related and maybe it's okay we don't have to worry about him anymore anyway
2: it was very nice with that's so amazing but what, what was that like then then so growing up and i assume then your parents weren't in the art world and you you wanted to enter the art world what was that did you feel like you had to really prove yourself then? Like you were saying that they were slightly worried about your career?
3: Well, well. first of all, I don't think art is a career. Secondary, second of all, I think there's the art world and the world of art. So I wasn't really thinking about entering the art world. What I was trying to do was make some art. And um, I think my mother thought, well, you're good with your hands, Maybe you could be a dentist, you know, and and uh, then we know that we don't have to worry about you. And particularly when I was cooking in a restaurant in New York City, uh, working at night at a place called The Locale, and I had blood all over my apron and my thing and dyed blonde hair, and I think they were concerned. In fact, I wanted to buy a building down on Walker Street. I think it was $30,000 at the time, but they thought, Hey, you know, the kid's crazy. We'll never see it if we lend him this money. So no, we don't want to put more of a burden on him. And uh, that never happened. But um, but they were, my mother was the um, valedictorian of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Uh, my father had a third grade education. He came to the United States. Uh, well, he left. Czechoslovakia when he was 12 and then he went to Belgium, stayed there for three years, worked as a mechanical dentist and came across as a stowaway but he was able to work on the boat. And when he got to the Brooklyn Navy Yard he said that somebody wanted him to get a newspaper and he never went back to the boat and that's where I came from. But they didn't really, they didn't know anything about painting or about, there weren't any artists in my family but my mom took me to see uh The Rembrandt painting of Aristotle contemplating the bust of Homer at the Met when it was there. I think I must have been about 11. It's funny because I was talking with Fran Leibowitz the other day, and I've known her forever. and We've never had a conversation really about anything. And somehow Laurie Anderson, we were, were, I don't know where we were, but she said, well, Fran, why don't you ask him what you asked me? You know, what was the most... uh, Uh, memorable moment that you had at the Met and then I told her about this and she said well that's exactly what happened to me we could have been standing next to each other in those days anyway so that's really um, I guess when I saw that painting I thought this looks like something worth doing
2: But what was it about that specific painting then that made you feel so secure in that decision making
3: Well there's an extraordinary light in it I liked the way that they were dressed, the outfit that Aristotle had on. And also, I mean, there was a big gold frame around it. and There was a lot of light in the painting. And then there was a big red velvet um, cord in front of it to keep people from getting too close to it, which implied that it was a very important thing. And it must be viewed with great importance. So maybe that was a subliminal um uh, Message to <laughs> that these
2: things could be important, that these things could have gravitas or carry this sort of masterly energy to them. And you thought that's what I wanted. Well, to-
3: I, I, I actually believe that everything that's not in the painting doesn't exist. I mean, we're here talking and whatever. I'm going to be dead soon, and both of you guys a little later, probably at some moment. And what is it that, uh, what do we do if you're not? You know, maybe people find solace in religion or whatever. But if you don't, I think art is something that transcends death. And I might not have talked about that when I was younger. I thought, you know, who needs to think about it like that? But um, the fact is that, and this is a quote from Tarkovsky. I mean, when he said, art is a representation of life. uh that's different than actual life itself. A representation. I mean, life includes death. A representation of life doesn't. So it is. Um, it is optimistic. You can never ha- you can have good art or bad art, but you can never have. Uh, but it can never be uh, pessimistic because it is. Uh, and I think that's a good. That's a good. Um, uh, dictum uh in trying to describe and the more I look at things that have been made and the way that they stay in place, there's um stability about that. And um uh, and um uh, it's a wonderful thought that you think that you know that you you can actually do something and there are people that will look at it that you'll never know, that you'll never meet, but they can feel um, you know, sometimes you listen to Lou Reed's singing and, you know, and you just, you could hear Lou breathing on the back of your neck and he may be dead, but, uh but his art's not dead. And, or if you see an Andy Warhol painting and, you know, you see a, a really great painting by Andy and it brings you into its present, whether it's a Caravaggio painting or you go to the Capo, Cappella de Scorvinio of Giotto or, or. If it's worth its salt and it holds itself on the wall there or whether it's a sculpture, whatever, you know, whatever it is, um, there's a question that is asked to Van Gogh in the movie that we made about him in Attorney's Gate where Dr. Ray says to him, "Uh, so do you think, because he says, I think that when people look at my work, I can make them feel more alive. And the Dr. Ray says to him, you don't think that they feel alive? And he says, no, I don't. And he says, and you think that you can make them feel more alive through painting? And he says, absolutely. Yes, I do. So uh, I don't know if it's Vincent speaking or me speaking, the words that are coming out of uh, Willem Defoe's mouth, but uh, I believe that. So, yeah, so you've just talked about, um, <clears throat> you
2: know, do you feel like death is imminent? And it sounds, I mean, I hope not, <laughs> Julian, but is this something now that is a big consideration when it comes to the work you're making and your legacy? Is this something that you're actually really having to talk about and consider now?
3: No, I've thought about death ever since I was a little kid. I think probably artists think about death quite a bit, and that's part of why they do what they do. But obviously, um, uh, you know, when you have friends around you that are dying, I mean, it it, it gives you pause. You know, I mean, obviously, Bryce Martin died. There was a funeral service for him the other day. I wasn't there. Uh, we, my son Omo. Directed a film called Pet Shop Days. It previewed in Venice, in the Venice Film Festival. So we flew over there, my wife and I, on Friday, got there Saturday, had to do something on Saturday night. His movie was Sunday at nine o'clock. We were back on the airplane Monday because we have a little daughter that's 21 months old. And I think we probably got. I don't know if we had COVID or we're just sick or tired um, or have a cold, but didn't want to go and make anybody else sick. So uh, we're in Montauk. Um, And then my daughter wasn't feeling so good last night, so she had a little bit of temperature. But I mean, we're fine. It's just, uh, um, you know, you want to, it's a weird time in the world, right? You want to protect other people. I mean, you know, if you imagine people in Maui burning to death in their cars, where are we? I mean, what is happening? Where are we? what are we doing? and so when you make art or whatever you do, I mean it can't be void of i mean I don't think that necessarily making art is uh i mean it's not about current events. It's not about, it's not discursive. Um, um, and it depends, there's a lot of different kinds of people that make a lot of different kind of art, but, but there has to be, I mean, there's also a line in the movie, um, where Van Gogh looks at the, at the landscape and he's looking out and he says, there must be some reason. I can't believe that there's no reason to exist. And I think whether it's Dante looking for that reason or Vincent Van Gogh or or somebody that we don't even know, I think they're asking themselves that same question. And I think when you see um, people that have, I mean, you try to figure out how to live, where to live, how to live with other people, and you see the way that things are the insanity of the way things are being managed. I mean, we're talking on the phone here. We pretty sure that a bomb is not going to drop right on top of either of the three of us right at this moment. But if you're in the Ukraine, you might be in the market with your children and and that's it just happen to be in the Ukraine at that moment. So, um, you know, what are we doing? And what is our responsibility as people, as humans, as artists? Uh, And and so there's different things that uh, you know one could get involved with to sort of try to alter uh, the destiny of things, or put a cap on it, or try to help with whether it be climate change or just help people that are are picking up plastic. Or on the other hand, uh, what are we making? Uh, I mean, for example, Sean Penn was taking care of these people in Haiti after there was a um, terrible um, hurricane some years back, and he helped all these people to live on a golf course. I couldn't really go over there to the golf course and serve people food or whatever, but I could make a painting and give the money from the painting to help pay for the people living on the golf course. Um, now it's the, but that's a separate issue of what I'm painting, or you know, that is so I, I don't make paintings to sell them, I make paintings to see them. Um, or I guess the movies and the sculpture, whatever I do, I mean, I never did it to make a dollar. But Tom White's once said, Money is just something that you throw off the back of a train.
2: I, I, I wouldn't throw money off the back of a train, <laughs> but
1: I, um. I remember being in Venice and walking around your show with you at the museum there, the, the Cora Museum. I think the, the Correr name. Museum. Yes. Yeah, Correr, exactly. And, um, and you actually gave a guided tour. And I had, had accidentally joined that tour with Maureen Paley. And I remember walking around with you, and we literally were with you for like an hour, and you spoke about every single painting, and you were with some of your, your close friends. And um, I was so struck by the I, – I, I felt like the paintings were making me wake up and there was something so romantic about them, but also quite um disruptive as a viewer that kind of shook me up. And afterwards I, I was really like um altered by the experience. Is that something that you like consciously are aware of when you were when you were making work, that it has this potential to kind of shake people?
3: <laughs> Thank you. I like that response quite a bit. I liked your response. I mean, um, and it comes to you unknowingly. No, it sneaks up on you. It's, you know, uh, there are people that have had Stendhal syndrome when they've been in my studio and just fell on the floor. One woman, I mean, her head hit the ground like a pumpkin. It sounded terrible. I mean, more than one person. Um, I think the intention is to you put everything inside and outside of yourself into that thing and then see what happens. And um, obviously it's sort of like a diary. If you see that particular show, I I think St. Sebastian was in that show. I think uh, the Jean Bigot painting, wax paintings were in that show. Also um, a painting called the immigration of the Duckbill platypus to Australia which was painted on a drop cloth and there's some bleach on it and there's a Tonka sewed to it and there are four white marks. And, um, I guess I see paintings everywhere and I don't have any hierarchical notions about what could be a painting or, um, and there's something about being able to lose yourself in the practice of doing that, that is, well, it works better than lorazepam or Xanax. Uh, maybe some people meditate or they do yoga. or I mean, I spent a lot of time surfing in my life, and that is something that altered me. And and I there's a bond that I have with people that I've done that with for years and their families. And it's important to stay in the water. It's the same way that if somebody had a job and and then their job is over and they don't know what to do with themselves afterwards and they kind of fall apart. So the longer you stay in the water, the better off you're gonna be. And I think that painters, it's like the mafia in the sense that you you can't quit. You don't go on vacation and you don't quit. You die doing that job. I mean, I saw Willem de Kooning um, not long before his death And he was pretty spaced out by the time. But when he was in the studio, he was precise and he was engaged. He might not have remembered who he talked to uh, a couple days ago, but he was very much in the present when he was painting his paintings. And um, so I use myself as the guinea pig. If it has that effect on me, maybe it could have that effect on you. I think what I discovered early on as I was trying to make paintings or that were mine that there was a um, contradiction in between what is pictorial and what is an object and maybe the first painting that I painted that really clarified that in the best way was Jack the Bellboy which was From 1975, and it had holes cut out, and then it had a plaster head sort of plastered to the top of it, and there were marks on it as if somebody had been in prison. But it was a palimpsest, a stasis of things, and there were contradictions in that painting that made people have to wonder. Well, wait, what's happening to me while I'm watching, looking at this thing? And I think that gave birth to the plate paintings, and. And I guess I wasn't satisfied just going to an art supply store and buying something that was predetermined by somebody else and painting on that thing just because other people did it. I think
2: that's what I've always been, been really exciting about the more you discover in your practice is that it feels like found materials are always the starting point. For your work, it's like things that have had their own sort of story before they've come to you. The the materials that you've worked on have been like sails from sail ships. You you bought a roof from someone's uh, hut. Uh, There's like uh, deer antlers. There's there's as you mentioned. There's china plates that you found in thrift stores. The army surplus material. All these materials that you you other people would pass by, but you suddenly are are struck by them, and you can see a whole narrative, a whole kind of adventure i guess as an artist that you can you can play out on all of these materials and that's something that i've really enjoyed understanding in your practice
3: well i I think it has to do with freedom not to be bound by your past necessarily not to be why didn't i think of that is this something that could happen to you you know you see something that for example i made some paintings recently. They were blue and white, and they covered a fruit market in the jungle in Mexico. I mean, somebody selected those two things. Maybe they were a good price. Who knows what their criteria was, but the sun faded those materials and turned them into something that to me was like the treasure of Sierra Madre. I said, okay, I'll buy you some new ones to cover the fruit in the market and brought this material back with me and I don't know how you do this on your show, if you show paintings or also, or you just are talking heads, but they're images of these things. And years ago, I was trying to make a larger mark. Um, And so I started to... Well, actually, I had some gesso on the floor of the studio, and I realized that I was using a hose... I was painting outside and I was using a hose to wash certain uh, water-based paints down on the material. And I looked down and the the hose was covered in gesso. And I thought, wow, what a great brush. So I picked up the hose like it was a lasso. And I th- threw it at the painting. It's, it's on one of the Hurricane Bob paintings, but there's an instant mark that was, you know, on a painting that was 15 feet square uh, and it was one succinct mark and it's a white mark. And if you think of, say, whether it be a Caravaggio painting or Franz Hall's painting or something where the lights painted into something, it's usually one clear white mark. Um, And it depends what it's sitting next to. Uh, Then I guess there was some, plastic that was on the floor. And I looked down and it was making an incredible pattern on the floor. So I thought, okay. And I took a tablecloth, dipped it in the paint, and then I threw the tablecloth at the painting. And when you did that, it looked kind of like an Albrecht Durge, old master gravure, except it was on a painting that was 22 feet by 22 feet. And I was throwing this um, tablecloth at the painting and without having a preconception about what images were going to come out you start to see someone that looked like they were flying through the air you're seeing them from the foot and their head was very far away or you're seeing something or things that looked like something but were unnameable so to me a great freedom opened up in that and i've used that part that technique for certain works and then there's other kind of works that i've made that have where i was um I was making some goat paintings. Um, I had some DeFore wallpaper that my daughter Stella found. um, And then I printed it on polyester and made it a bit larger. And I always wanted to have an albino buffalo head, but impossible to find. But there was a goat that was on Houston Street in a bricolage place, and I bought it. Superimposed that image into this DeFore wallpaper, changed the plinth that it was on so this goat was standing on top of a hill, and there was Cornwallis giving his sword to George Washington. Well, I took that's in some of the paintings, but I took that out later digitally, and I was throwing, uh, I I used ink and I made some marks and then I took a hose and let the hose make the ink bleed. And what that did is instead of the paint sitting on top of the surface, it, it immersed itself into the surface to where it, the surface was the same, but obviously the image was altered. And I guess there was enough water and purple and white that I used that the whole floor of the studio kind of looked like an overhead view of Mexico City from an airplane so I started to photograph the floor of the studio and I made some paintings like that weather paintings and then once I did that I started to use spray paint uh on those of uh, the same color and so you had the sensation, most of the time when you look at paintings, you look at, you look at them as if you're standing on the ground looking at something, whether it's far away or closer. Well, these paintings look like you're in an airplane looking down at some. And it's interesting how the, um, just the randomness of the way things were on the floor resembled the anatomy of landscape, of landscape of say um, uh, mapped off of areas of what you're going to plant or build where buildings would be or things that man-made choices so there's a similarity between things that are man-made or things that are naturally made for example um, there's straight edges that have to do with things that are man-made uh, it's unusual when it's a na- of a natural um, a course that it is, has right angles to it. But there's a similarity between the bark on the trees, the veins in your hands, the veins in the leaves, the cracks in material as it's falling apart. So there's a kind of concert of mm-hmm. drawing that exists in these things. That has been something that's been useful to me. When I started breaking the plates, they looked like cracks. They looked like the palm of your hand. They looked like bits of... I could remember standing in Brooklyn as a child in front of a big tree and looking at the bark, waiting for my father to open the door while I was freezing, just because it took a while to open the door and all of us to get into the house. But that tree was always in front of the house. And I spent a time just A lot of time just looking at it close up, the bark. Um, And I guess it's that, and also, you know how humans try to protect trees in urban environments by building fences around them or putting iron around them? Um, there, There are things that kind of catch your eye that send you a signal that you. Maybe go to a cul-de-sac for a while and then they pop up somewhere else.
2: Well, it sounds like you, you you really get lost in your studio. And it's also like a feeding system. Like the work creates the work, creates the work. Like you're saying you did this, you spotted that, that made that. Then that inspired you to photograph that, which you then did paintings on, which then looked like. It really feels like you, your, your worlds are made within your own like studio it's like everything is every the world is there all at your hands in that space
3: yeah and what else what isn't i'll see outside and bring it home (laughs) i mean you know the paintings that were painted on kabuki backdrops um i had made a painting on some kind of banner from coney island in 1985 um, i think and Akira Keta this Japanese art dealer said, you know, I have some backdrops from the Kabuki Theater in Japan. Would you like to paint on those? I said, absolutely. And all of a sudden, if you see the film Basquiat, you see them moving Ulalio Epiklantos out of one room in, into the elevator. And the and, uh, Albert Milo the character of Gary Oldman who was playing me says you know I made this painting for Joseph Boys I thought he could have done it it's sort of a reincarnation painting you know the chinese calligraphers used to change their name mid career so they could start over as somebody else really and uh, so the idea that you could have a new identity rather than just copying yourself was something that I liked and then invariably you know you make things that look very very different or could have a different appearance but you can tell by the hand, the gesture, that oh, that he probably made that, or she probably made that.
2: Mm-hmm. Like like motifs, trademarks, you can sort of pick up on.
3: Well, you try not to have be. Spe- I think signaturizing is a form of death in a in a way. So uh, I wouldn't want to just be the guy. That, oh, the guy that makes the paintings with the plates. And I didn't know. I didn't know that there would be more than five of those pictures or one or two of those pictures. I didn't know what the possibilities were. And I think if you look at them, the first one, the patients and the doctors looks much more like a schematic diagram or the depth of fashion. And then if you look at the ones I paint, I never thought in a million years, I was going to paint paintings of Van Gogh paintings on those paintings. And, and that there would be a reason to do it. I mean, when I say a reason that it would make some kind of sense or, or nonsense, I mean, its own sense, but, you know, John Renoir, one of my favorite quotes is that he says, the problem with the world is everybody's got their reasons. So I don't worry about that too much. Trying to be reasonable. I try to be reasonable, but, but, um, I kind of uh... I was making a painting the other day, and I put bleach on the velvet. Uh, when it was on a blue velvet, the bleach became white. It looked like a big sprayed area. When I put the bleach on this green velvet, the bleached area became yellow. I had no idea it was going to turn yellow like that, but what a great thing. Once I saw a green and yellow painting, then I, I knew what to do next. Get some Mars violet out and, uh, and mineral violet. Anyway, you'll, you can see that painting in the show. But, uh, you know, in surfing, if you don't take off, you don't take off. If you hesitate, once you've gotten out there, And you miss it, then there's another four or five waves, maybe more, that's going to come and land on your head. And yeah, it might be scary, but why go out there if you're not going to do it? And so that leap of faith or that kind of of doing something where you're not totally in control instead of illustrating what you know is something that I guess. I'm. I do. Uh,
2: I think that's good advice for anybody listening who's who wants to, you know, t- take that leap of faith and be brave. I think that's something you've always been very open to jumping to a challenge or jumping to these these instincts that you've you mu- you you feel like you have instincts constantly kind of triggered in you to to make.
3: Well, I'm getting ready to make a movie right now. Uh, It's very complicated and, you know, you have to deal with actors. And the thing about painting is you don't have to translate anything to anybody. You don't even have to translate it to yourself. You don't have to know what you're doing. I guess that's a different part of my brain, but the the notion of the unknown or doing something where you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you're going to apply yourself. You're going to conspire with your conspirators to breathe with them. And then if you get through the day and then you compile all the stuff and then you can not lose your mind through the editing process and then figure out what it is that you'd like it to be, it, you get engaged. And, and, and I think that that's, I don't, I don't know if I'd call it exciting but I would say that when you're engaged, no matter how complicated it is, it's sort of more satisfying than waiting to begin to work or waiting for other people to decide something or just, or um, it's a funny thing between knowing and not knowing. I mean, I've been in a situation where I was making Before Nightfalls and I'm sitting on a hill and my assistant director and the DP, the director of photography, and they're saying, okay, so let's shoot this. And I said, well, you guys, the professional filmmakers, go do it. If that's what you want to do. I don't know what I want to do yet. So I'm going to sit here for a couple moments and then I'll tell you what I want to do. And we'll do it then. And not, Obviously, people have to be prepared and have everything that you might need. But, I mean, I had one assistant director that said, I never shot anything that I rehearsed. I mean, with the camera. I might have looked at something with the camera and put it somewhere and said, okay, I've seen it like that. Let's do it this way. Now, Captain Beefheart didn't like to play his songs over and over. He liked it sort of, you know, for it to be fresh. And in general, I mean general i mean up till now i don't rehearse we don't rehearse when we make a movie i mean i read things with the actors we know they know who they are but for example in the diving bell and the butterfly matthew almerich never read the script with the other people in the movie one reason is he never got to speak to anybody in the movie because he couldn't talk and his dialogue or monologue he was in a sound booth listening to what other people said. And then he, I said, say whatever you want. And he would say whatever he, his response to the images were. And I think there was great freedom for him. It was a nice surprise for me. And I think it worked out and it was, and it seemed like that's just the way it should have been. It was supposed to be.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com You know, that, that's
1: one of the most um, uh, key moments for me. Because I saw that, that film and it made me see you in a completely different light. Like I'd had an understanding of you. I was probably about 26 when the film came out and I had this kind of idea of who you were. And having watched that film just totally blew my mind. I'd never seen a film like it, it just the perspective of it. And um, the, the thing that it struck within me was the a, a kind of um, love of like romance somehow, like in a really like internal way or something, but also just the sensitivity and the kind of, just the the thoughtfulness and the care and the generosity of of the story and the way it 's presented visually like was that a really important moment for you personally because i I read that um you you initially had an idea for a similar film perhaps, and then the script sort of arrived to you after you 'd already read the book, but you'd already had this idea because of warhol's um Colleague, wasn't it, who was sick, and you'd visited them in hospital.
3: Fred, Fred Hughes had Fred Hughes had MS. Yes, I used to go. I used to go and read to him in his apartment, and he was stuck in his bed. I have claustrophobia. I never. I thought that could be the worst thing that could happen. But one thing I found out in the course of making the movie is that when Jean Dominique Boby talked to Bernard Chapuis, his best friend, he said he wouldn't trade places with anyone because something happened to him and he was a different person. There was something that opened up that became alive in him that he didn't have before the event, which crazy it seems crazy to me. Uh, hard to believe, but it was a real epiphany to hear that. Um, paintings don't necessarily exude explanations. People look at them and you know, maybe, you know, what you're saying is I think people have an idea or an idea about me that where I'm not particularly sensitive, I might be kind of brutish in a way, arrogant and God knows what else, but maybe I just didn't feel like participating or uh cooperating in what I felt was a hypoc- hypocritical situation. Uh And not no, not meaning to offend anyone, but I just, um, I guess I confronted uh, things in a way. But if, if people knew me, they knew that it really—I was, wasn't particularly. I wasn't like this person that 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 was a, some kind of loudmouth bully that I was supposed to be. Or I don't. I don't know. I think what happens in in, uh, and also, I say a lot of things in tongue-in-cheek, and, and, and you know, people don't have much of a sense of humor. But that being, that being said, uh, I guess when somebody watches a movie, they see human beings acting out situations in things, and they can understand the sentiment of the author, the sentiment that might put people in the situation and how it's resolved. And in that way, it's a much more communicative in terms of just a a, a literalness that is not necessarily part of painting or sculpture. Uh, And most of the time, people that are drawn to paintings don't need an explanation. They're happy to be surprised. There are other people... I think I wrote about in the in the CVJ book, like when Clement Greenberg came to my show and he told me to take this out. Why did I do that? You know, this, sometimes people just want to agree with the preconception of what they had of who you were and what your work looked like. And if you and if you disappoint them, then too bad for you and for them. I also remember a painting that I made called The Mud in Mudanza, which is in my house in New York. I've kept it since I made it in 1982. It's a big plate painting. And Eddie Devilde, who gave me my first big museum show, and his first one in Europe at the Stedlick Museum in 1982, had seen this painting. He came to my house and he said, wow, this painting is incredible. It's, I said, you've seen it before. And he said, no, I didn't. And I said, I guess you didn't. And sometimes people don't see things right away. They see them later. They see them in another context. There might something happen to them in their lives that changed them in some way. But uh, I think that paintings, you never see them once. You see them for the first time each time you see them. And uh, the good ones really, it, it's nice. It's 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 always sad if you think, oh, there's a painting on the wall and people don't pay any attention to it and they don't look at it. They just, they've seen it before and they think they've seen it. And that doesn't happen to me in my house. I've seen it happen to Damien Hurst I mean, I remember a painting in his house in Mexico being on the wall And, you know, people just walk by it, see it, it's there, it's a, you know, it's a painting of his, it was, and I thought, I don't want, I don't want to have that experience. I don't know that you can control that, you know, it depends how important you, you know, where you place something, Um, what you hang in your place. Uh, I mean, I hang, I have a lot of my own art in my house, but I have art of other people too, work that I, that I like.
2: Was it was it seamless moving from artist to director? Did, did did it feel like a natural progression you were taking, or or was it was it
3: a real challenge when you when you took that on? Uh, you know what? I never felt like I was a movie director. I mean, Tarkovsky is a movie director. I mean, Wes Anderson's a movie director. I mean, the people that I mean, they really communicate only through filmmaking. Marty Scorsese is a movie director. Um, Some movie directors should be painters and maybe they wouldn't have to make some movies that they made because they'd have something else to do. Uh, But it's very hard for people to make movies about artists that are not artists. That's one thing that I know how to do. I guess I know my topic. Interesting.
2: That's really interesting because you, you've made films about Basquiat. You've made film a film about Van Gogh. It's like you and you obviously knew Basquiat. He was a friend of yours. You've been in the studio. You've watched him paint. And fun fact for everyone listening: all the paintings in the Basquiat movie were made by Julian because you couldn't get the copyright to use uh john's actual original works and you you knew his line
3: yeah his dad said just you do it he didn't yeah his dad said you know you do it it's just i'm not learning anything but you can do it anyway uh but i tried to get the Basquiat film made for somebody else it was a polish director who was interviewing me and i thought i could help him i had no idea i was going to be a movie director but he was a tourist and it was so far off that I basically bought the rights back from him, rewrote the script um, from some other, and there were versions of things that other people had written that had contributed. And I just made, made the movie myself. not met myself with other people, but I mean, I made the movie, not, not the other guy. And the other thing is that I knew my topic. And I, I mean, I was a movie fan ever since I was little, I didn't ever think I was going to be a movie director. And so, But it it wasn't that hard to do. And Dennis Hopper said, looks like you've been doing this for 40 years. He was extremely helpful and great. And, you know, he signed on right away. And Chris Walken and Willem Dafoe and Gary Oldman. I mean, these people, they loved art and they did it for me. And I was the first time director and it it was uh, Jeffrey Wright. That was his first role in a movie. Benicio del Toro was amazing. Um, Claire Forlani was great. Anyway, so I made that movie and then Jeffrey was great in it. Then this Cuban friend of mine talked told me about Rinaldo Arenas and I watched this documentary about Havana. And this guy is sitting in South Beach in some hotel and he was talking and i couldn't take my eyes off him and i thought okay well i think i I know something about that and uh javier bardem i'd seen him in jamon jamon i lived in spain for a while i thought this guy's either like that or he's a genius actor met him and at first benicio del toro was going to play Reynaldo and then And we're very good friends, but that didn't work out. And then, and 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 and, uh, Javier was going to play Lassado. Anyway, it turned out that he said, "Well, if if you give me three months to get my to learn how to speak English better and get my accent right, I'll I'll do it." And I so I gave him the role. And that was a like making some crazy Russian movie. I mean, I worked eighteen-hour days there. I was I built. I, you know, I built the house, the, the the grandparents' house. I built it. The people who owned the, the land moved into it after. I mean, bought, bought, a, bought a, a sugar cane field and lit it on fire so we could shoot there. I mean, it, I was operating without any sound methods. I thought I was John Ford or, I mean, Marlon Brando in, in Apocalypse Now. I mean, it was, I mean, I was telling Olivia Martinez he needed to swim across this channel. He said, I, I think you know, I'm scared of the sharks. I said, I walked into the water. I had a cast on it, Like I said, I'll punch one of those sharks in the face. Just swim across there, will you? And then you know, there was an earthquake while that was happening. And a guy was in a crane. And this, the DP says, so there was an earthquake. I said, fuck the earthquake. Did you get the shot? Yeah. I said, okay, we're cool. But I was, I was loco, you know. Do you feel, do
2: you feel like a movie director now? And you've just said you don't feel like it then. Do you feel like you are
3: now? Well, I was a movie director a second ago when I was telling you that story. Right, good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How do you you feel about collaboration? Because I was thinking, you know, the studio is sometimes a really solitary practice as an artist, especially as a painter. I think it's this real battle with the self somehow. But... But you mentioned earlier, you know, like you have influences from family members or, or other artists. And there's obviously there is a collaboration within being a painter. But how do you feel about that with filmmaking or just, you know, your general relationship to collaboration?
3: It's great when there's somebody that can do something that you can't do. And you can use their talent to help you achieve something that's better than anything you could have done by yourself. Whether it's Javier Bardem's performance in Before Night Falls, or Johnny Depp's performance in Before Night Falls, or um there are people that know how to do things that you don't know how to do, but if you know how to ask the right questions, they can help you and you can do that together. Um yeah, I'm a movie director now because I've done it um I've done it a few times and I guess I sort of know the drill, but that being said, I have no idea what I'm going to do the first day of shooting. I know what the script is. I know where we're going, but I'm not going to know what I'm doing until I'm doing it. It's like when Tommy Como says to Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, how do you feel, Jake? You feel good? He says. I'm not going to know how I feel till I get it till I get in there and I'm fighting with them, and so that's the same as painting. you go in there and you don't know what's happening, and the only difference is there's nobody watching you while you're doing this other thing. There's nobody else depending on you at that moment other than your children, so you, they can feed them you know if you don't make things too impossible for them, but my wife, Louise super smart she's not an editor she is an interior designer and she but she built or she designed my show that was in the aros museum i mean usually they have a architectural uh, team that does this she did it they built the walls that she designed the show i had at the museum of fine arts in in san francisco with max holland she Designed the walls. I knew I wanted to make these paintings to fit in the courtyard where the Rodin sculpture was. And they had to be 24 feet tall. And if she didn't do it, I would have had to carry these things around there, and which I've done most of my life. Uh, the Musée d'Orsay show. I mean, she built the walls in Gayolente's place where there were holes because of some idea about showing the new and the old, and that was not part of what that show needed to be. So there were salon-style hanging, and because of that, I was able to hang you know, Van Gogh's self-portrait, Gauguin's paintings. And when we the show was over, the Musée d'Orsay kept the walls for the Gauguin and the Van Gogh paintings <laughs> that she had. To-
1: Whoa, that's cool.
3: And then when we were making At Eternity's Gate, we were staying at Jean Claude Carrier's house, and he and I were getting to a point where I was hearing music and stuff, and he wasn't in the in the in the thing we were writing. And we were—he had an an encyclopedic mind. He would tell me stuff that. So wait a minute. That's dialogue. Just hold on. Let me let me get that down. And and then we got to a point, and Louise somehow could acquiesce and. Transcend some of the rudimentary issues and put it into context. And she ended up writing the script with us. And then (coughs) when I made the film, she edited the film. I mean, Juliette Welfling, who did the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, was going to, but she was busy on a Jacques Odiac film and wasn't going to start. First, we thought in March, then April. We started editing the movie on an airplane. She put the Avid program in her laptop. And then when Juliet got a hold of it, God bless her, she's a genius, but she started to take out everything out of it that characterized as itself. So I said, well, you know, I don't think you want to do this and I don't think we need you to do this and respect. So the people that were the producers or whatever, I, I said, you know, Louise is going to edit the movie. We weren't married at the time. of this. your girlfriend... Is Gonna edit the movie? I said, Yeah, my girlfriend is gonna edit the movie. And I have final cut, don't I? (laughs) And she knocked it out of the park. And it's great if you can. I mean, we've been together, I don't know, nine years or whatever, we have a little baby. She's so smart. You gotta listen. And if you're lucky enough to be with somebody that's that bright and you don't listen. Something wrong with you. So I've been extremely fortunate to work with her, and now I mean, yeah, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing moment. My son Olmo, his film, Pet Shop Days, premiered in Venice on Sunday. It is one. I, it's funny because there's a line in the in in his thing where this guy's talking on the radio and, and the guy says uses the word fuck and he says you can't say that on the radio but i imagine i can say this on this podcast but anyway the language i i mean these two guys have this love affair and do a bunch of bad stuff and get in a lot of trouble and you can't take your eyes off of you can't take your eyes off the screen i mean i've known almo his whole life He never washed a dish when he was a kid. I mean, and a couple of years ago, but when he was four, we were at a film festival in San Sebastian, and they sent over a DVD of The Pianist, and it came out in black and white when we were watching. He was four years old at the time, and he said to me, you know, I think it's much more realistic looking when it's in black and white. And I thought, yeah, I I think you're correct. It's right. And I guess it's, I don't know that he knew that he was an artist. His brother, twin brother, Cy, has a gallery. If you look on the internet, uh, he he has a thing called Via Magdalena, Instagram. And you can see the exhibitions he's put on in my old studio in San Sebastian. Um, They're twins, not, not identical. Anyway, he's really good at that. And he's a great writer. Olmo thought Cy was the artist and he didn't really know what he was doing or what he was gonna do, and but he always loved film and he got the money together and he produced and directed his own film. And now he's in Rome and he's producing my film. He got all the dough together and he's he's managing this coal what can you call it i i don't want to call it a car
2: production the whole thing
3: yeah i mean i, I mean,
2: mean well it that, sounds like collaborations in your family julian it feels like you. well really my son can.
3: vito is an art dealer and and, and he had an incredible de Curico show up not long ago and i mean and he shows my work and uh he works with the pace gallery he works with other people but he's yeah i mean they're all of them my daughter lola is a painter and Stella, my daughter Stella, is an actress. She acted in a couple of the movies. She she's the French girl in in uh, at Eternity's Gate, where Willem Dafoe says, "Well, if I cleaned up a little, would you find me attractive?" She said, "Maybe," but I said, "Would you stay with me if I gave you something?" He says, "You don't have any money." And then he says, "She's watching him paint," and he says, "Well, those flowers are much more beautiful than the flowers that you're painting." He says, "Yeah," but. Uh, you know, maybe you should make a painting of me. He says, Well, I can make you look younger. And she says, That wouldn't be fair. Anyway, that's my, that's Stella. Anyway, you know, I have seven kids. My son Shooter is 10. And we have a little baby named Esme. Esme, Esme, from the J.D. Salinger story for Esme with Love and Squalor. So that's Esme, Ingrid, for Ingrid Sishi, Esme, Ingrid, Esther kugelberg's novel and she's she's smart can i
2: ask you about um the 1980s art scene that you are so embedded in you are part of art history and what i mean the two things i want to know really specifically are do you miss it and what was the best memory of that period of time when when it was it was like on fire with the art scene
3: no i don't miss it Things that I remember, one, my the day that I was having my first show at Leo Castelli and Mary Boone. I mean, that was the first artist that he took into the gallery in 12 years. And I was so nervous that I walked down from 14th Street, Union Square. Well, I lived on 20th Street, so I walked down and I had red spots all over my face. And I was hearing in my head, is that all there is? Is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friend? Then let's keep dancing. Bring out the booze and have a ball. Anyway, I was hearing that in my head. And that was pretty cool to see the paintings in there. And then I had another exhibition that was at the Entrepoliné. of uh, the CAPC in Bordeaux, where I showed 19 16-foot square paintings. Jean-Louis Fromant put on that exhibition. And that I felt pretty satisfied looking at those paintings in that room. I also felt good when I had this exhibition at the Quartel del Carmen in Seville, where I put in 24 stations of the cross instead of 14 and left the walls the way they were and built a cross that had the word idiota written on it in the courtyard. And Whoa,
2: controversial.
3: I, I had been offered a, a show in a, another, in a museum and I said, no, no, I want to, what about this old building here? I, I want to do it here. And then I had an exhibition of sculptures in the winter of 89, 90, something like that that Bruno Bischofberger put on there were in the chanterelle uh uh chanterelle what's it called uh chanterella there's a there was a a hotel that closed and there was an ice skating ring and i put these 16 sculptures out on that precipice in front of the alps and that was so i guess what i'm saying is The privilege of making those things and putting the work in those places, that was really the thing. I mean, you know, it was nice. Harold Zeman invited me to be in the Biennale in 1982. But as far as the hanging out or hanging around with all of these, um, I don't miss any of that. Um, It was great to meet some people. But, I mean, I met Angela Lansbury when I was a cab driver. What could be better than that? Really?
2: That's true. That's a good one.
3: I knew Bill de Kooning. I knew uh, Cy Twombly. I rented the front part of my studio to a woman named Mala Brewer, who in 1975, I guess, had been a student of, I had been a student of Clifford Still so in 1979 or whenever he came to New York City she said Clifford Still's coming over and he came over I got some pizza I invited Ross Blechner to come over and eat some pizza with Clifford Still and then I showed him a painting called Giacomo Expelled from the Temple and he really really liked it now I had no idea but about a year ago, Judy Hudson, a friend of mine who's a painter, Judy Hudson says, "Have you seen? Uh, there's a documentary called Lifetime about Clifford Still on Channel 4, whatever thirteen. What I it? No, turn it on. Find it if you can." Clifford Still bought a tape recorder, and when he was in New York, he recorded. His wife had it in Washington, and he called her, and she recorded his conversation. And in that, he says, I met this young painter. His name was Schnabel. He seemed more Italian, but I guess he's Polish. Uh, And he had these paintings. There was some real roots to those paintings. Uh, There's something happening there. This was in his voice to his wife. You can find it on Lifetime. I might be paraphrasing the one, but I mean, who would have thunk it? Or, I mean, it was great to meet him. Years later, when they asked an artist to curate the first exhibition of his collection, of his paintings in Denver, uh, Dean Sobel called me and asked me, because there was a picture of us from that day, if I would curate the show. So Louise and I actually curated that show. Out of 62 paintings, we moved two of them, and that was two of them in the same room from one wall to the other, but the other 62 paintings, and you can see that. If you go to Louise Kugelberg, to her uh, website, you can see the installation of Clifford Still's show. So when you talk about the 80s, you know, sure, Jean-Michel and I were friends. Um, I knew Jeff Koons. I mean, I sat around... And Max is where Jeff Kuhn said to some older painters that I knew, you know, they said, what do you do? He said, I I present the new. That didn't go over big with them, you know. They thought, what the fuck, you know. And, and I said, it's okay. It's all right, you know. and Or um, I had a great friend named Bob Williamson, who was Lauren Hutton's boyfriend. And he was much older than me, but he kind of, told me I should buy my paintings back and told me all sorts of different things about pit bulls in the Amazon and God knows what else, but he was, and so I, I had a very privileged, I put myself out there and I, and, and, and the things that I really, um, you know, remember, obviously, you know, break dancing started. Um, there are these, crews that would come down from Harlem and be a a dance at grill on Second Avenue. There was these uh, transvestite uh, voguing shows. I mean, I made one painting that said um, FQMNWC, Femme Queen Realness, Femme Queen, Morning, Noon and Night, Walking Cunt, uh, RR, Real Realness. I mean, there were different categories. But I guess being young, I mean, Richard Serra was very nice to me. Uh, Gave me a ride uptown once to see Bryce Martin's show. Um, Yeah, I knew a lot of artists that nobody knows who they are anymore. A lot of artists that were part of that community that nobody ever heard of. But if I see an older person, They'll know who they were. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of, I have a pretty good memory. So, I saw Eric Emerson with a bullwhip stand in front of Max's Kansas City at four o'clock in the morning and whip a cigarette out of a guy's mouth at about 30 feet away. (laughs) I mean, you know, Lou Reed and I were great friends, but we didn't really become friends till much later. Um, And then we were really, really, really close.
1: I loved your collaboration with Lou actually for Berlin as well. That was such an amazing collaboration in the sense of music and art and how when they merge in a really authentic you know with with trust essentially how much bigger it can even become you know like it just and even you know the red hot chili peppers album cover you did for example things like that like they it's just magic i i love those collaborations
3: russell where did you find this guy robert yeah (laughs) Tracy Emin introduced us.
2: Yeah, we got we got introduced by an artist
3: that we're both a fan of. Yeah, who's a friend of yours? Yeah, she is. <laughs> I haven't spoken to her for a while, but I actually helped her hang her show in Venice some years ago, just a little bit. But she's adorable. Um, I had some great friends. I mean, you know, Tom Waits. There's a line in a song of his. Is said life is a path that is only lit by the light of the ones you love. Something like that. And, you know, Hercules Belleville, who used to work with Jeremy Thomas, was my dear friend. Um, and obviously, Jean Claude Carrier died. And it was a, you know, a, I, I've Max Von, I got the chance to, I worked with Max Von Sydow. I mean, I directed Max Von Sydow in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I mean, what? a privilege to and we were great friends to know him to work with him you know if you're a painter and you have opinions about movies it doesn't matter but you're you're a director and you have opinions they listen to you and that is a big leg up if you want to, if you care about movies and you want to have an effect on them because then it means something you know it's they can use what you know So, uh, I mean, for example, Marty Scorsese is going to be in this film that I'm making. He's a great friend. I mean, the fact that he is my friend, it seems uh, immeasurable to me in the same way that when I was at the Cannes Film Festival and they said, Best director, Julian Schnabel. I mean, what painter is going to sit in the audience? Julian Schnabel is the best director? Okay, come up here and get your award, you know. And then I'm I'm standing there and I walk up there and I think, well, I thought I was going to get the Palme d'Or. And I think I was supposed to get it until about a couple of hours before when they realized that maybe I was having too much fun or like Michel Michel Piccoli was a communist and he was on the jury. Anyway, so, because they asked all the girls who were in the movie to come to be at the presentation. Anyway, so I get this award and I walk up and Carol Bouquet and uh, Alan Delon they greet me and then Gus Van Zandt gets an award and I thought he received the Palme d'Or and he said, you know, I didn't. They gave me a special award this evening. He said, you can still get the Palme d'Or. You can, get, you can get Best Director and the Palme d'Or. So I'm behind the stage, and I'm standing there, and I think, shit, am I going to win the Palme d'Or also? I mean, this is it's incomprehensible. And all of a sudden, they start to announce, and they gave it to a Romanian director. For, I think it was, what, three months, 14 days, and seven weeks, or whatever it's called. But he won anyway but for a moment the whole you know irreality of the thing is so absurd uh and um but I, you know i i got to know i mean you know i was i was great friends with bernardo bertolucci and when i went to to um paris the in 1976 the first film I watched, it was the Atto Due, the second part of 1900, second part first, in with French subtitles in Italian. I didn't speak Italian or French. That was the first. Then when I lived, I moved to Italy and I, I saw the the first part in Italian with no subtitles. So basically learned how to speak Italian watching movies. And uh, in Marco Ferreira's movie, La Ultima Donna, They use the word "bisogno" a lot. "Bisogno" means I need you. It was a romantic kind of tragedy with Gérard Depardieu and Ornella Muti. Anyway, I loved, I think Gérard Depardieu is a brilliant actor. I mean, in Cyrano, he was so great. In 1900, he was great. I named my son Olmo after his character in 1900. So anyway, you know, Bernardo is dead. Jean-Claude Carrier is not here. Hector Babenco is not around. Hector Babenco. Okay, so I saw the film Pichot. I thought it was amazing. You know the movie? You guys have to watch it. P-I-X-O-T-E. o t e. Two My two favorite films of 1980 were Raging Bull and Pichot. And when I saw it, it just blew my mind. And I, I I actually asked Hector if I could use the music from his movie in Basquiat. And he said, yeah, I'll sell it to you for $1. And if you see a documentary that Papi Corsicato made about me some years ago, or whatever Hector Babenko's in it and he's very funny. And he says, yeah, I got I got in bed. He was lying next to me in the bed and he says, Hi, Hector. And then and then I was so pissed off because my maid said he made the best risotto ever. And he was just so funny and you know what he was jealous about. But um brilliant brilliant filmmaker. So you know, did film have an effect on my paintings? I mean, I made paintings with titles like painting for the Italian cinema painting for the French cinema I thought about Francois Truffaut an awful lot or Bertrand Blier or uh, Robert Bresson or framing if you could do
2: an art heist you could steal any work of art in the world for yourself what would it be and why
3: well I'd like them just to give it to me I don't want to steal it Uh, the beheading of Saint John the Baptist by Caravaggio
1: that's a good choice.
3: What, why that work? That might be my favorite painting of all time. Anyway, there's a man named Adam Lowe. Adam Lowe makes the highest quality digital reproductions of anything. And Prado let him make me a reproduction of the painting by Goya of Marie Luisa, the Queen of Spain, on a horse. I have it at home. 11 feet tall. And I've been waiting for him to get permission to copy the beheading of St. John the Baptist. Uh, so I'll let you know when that happens.
1: The other question is, what is your favorite color? That's funny.
3: I don't know. I'd have to say pink. But if I think of my friend Joe Glasgow, he would have said, it depends what colors next to it.
2: Exactly. Yeah, we get that a lot. And what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your
3: art? You may think that somebody is smarter than you and knows more, and they may, and they may, but nobody, the, the nobody can tell you what you need to do with your art. Most older artists are gonna try to get you to conform to the standards that you're out to destroy anyway. That's my quote.
2: Love that. That's good. That's great. Well, this has been amazing, Julian. We're here to talk about your show, which is upcoming. Uh, The Pace Gallery opens September 15th in New York City to October 28th. It's titled Bouquet of Mistakes, and it's a whole lot of new velvet paintings, which
3: Rob, very luckily, is going to be able to pop in and see. Well, the, the thing is that they have to do with the sky of illimitableness. I mean, Dante was governed by nine skies, and so a lot of the titles of the paintings have to do with the nine skies and a mountain fortress that again you know i guess the fact that i'm getting ready to do this and i'm it's 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 based on a book by nick tosh but i'm living my whole family is and my wife i mean we're living in, in nick tosh's shoes and have to trek through whatever went on inside of him in order to unearth what he wanted to unearth and there's a line in his, in his text that said, he wanted to express the inexpressible. And, and this man, Isaiah says to Dante, you've lifted the veil, you've become the poem. And that's what I said to Lou Reed when he died. I was holding him in my arms. I guess it was two days before he died in the swimming pool. And I, I said, you've become the poem you've expressed the inexpressible so maybe that's the goal wow anyway nice talking to you guys so nice to
2: talk to you yeah it's been been wonderful thank you so much Julian Anyway, so for everyone listening, please go to at Pace on Instagram or the Pace website where you can see uh, all images. And if you're in New York, go and please visit the show bouquet of Mistakes, um, where we will also be posting on our talk up we'll be posting uh, images of the goat painting we were speaking about, the plate paintings we were touching on. Uh, we didn't talk about big girl paintings, which I absolutely love, which we didn't talk about. And I want a sleigh bed one day. We can put that out there. But also I want to uh, finish on a quote, Julian, that you had once on t T-shirt i saw in a video uh which said never refuse a mint which uh, is something (laughs) that i uh i live by i think that is a good advice that we can all follow so thank you so much julian and um yeah we'll see you all next time
1: take care we'll be back very soon
2: Bye. Bye. bye